Part Three, Chapter Three of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Three, Chapter Three. Next day they moved, and the simple action of transferring their belongings to a new place seemed to mark the opening of a new chapter for them both. Severne, for Kurt, had been fallow. He had done no work. The rain, with its depressing monotony, the new surroundings, the natural laxity after a summer of hard work at Fontainebleau, and the sudden complication brought about by Chloe's letter and Tony's arrival, everything had worked against the mental peace that composition demanded. In St. Paul, Things were different from the outset. There was none of the ravening loneliness that had made the early days of rain at Severn a torment. Tony was good company when company was wanted. Furthermore, Tony's vivacity, his scoffing intolerance of the sentimental, made introspective probings and questionings and self-pityings seem puerile and strangely, for Kurt, out of place. Their life together, without any haggling, fell at once into pleasant and congenial grooves. Tony made the keynote speech on their first evening in the new quarters. The fire crackled and spat, and the lamp Kurt had extinguished. "'See here,' Tony began. "'You want to work here, don't you? Well, so do I. I've got a jolly idea for a play. I don't want my play spoiled, and you don't want your concerto or whatever it is spoiled.' They both will be if we start this thing off wrong. We've misbehaved once, at my suggestion. That was part of your cure. Well, you know how I feel about that. I enjoyed it, and I hope you did. For me, that's enough. And you're not so sure about me, is that it? No, I'm not. Your experience with this thing has been... I don't suppose I can admit that it's been right, considering my philosophizings to you. But it's been pretty clean and fortunate. I expect the other night was the first time you ever slept with a person you didn't love, or fancy you loved. I'm afraid— You're afraid, Kurt interrupted, that being a simple country lass, I'll fall in love with you. He was smiling in the flickering half-light. Well, yes, that's what I'm afraid of. Why are you afraid of it? Because I like you too well. That doesn't sound quite logical to me, but we'll have to let it go at that. You're arbiter in this matter. It's up to you. All right, then. I am arbiter, and it's all settled. We'll be... Here his voice became mock dramatic. We'll be, Lord Fortescue, as though nothing had ever passed between us. And on that basis, the month proceeded, day after perfect day. Kurt reveled in the house, the rugged picturesque town, the ordered simplicity of life. And Tony, too, was less restless than at Severne. Elise, a stodgy girl the owner had recommended to them, came each morning, prepared their breakfast of strong tea, crusty bread and preserves, did the necessary housework, got ready a simple lunch, and departed. After a forenoon of work, Kurt in the garden or in his room, Tony on the balcony of his, they would meet to eat what she had left for them. They would walk then until tea-time, along the twisting climbing road to Vance, or, more often, 
some inviting path through fields and wooded hills, and descending to the valley, play like two ten-year-olds in the shallow water of the Var, making toy boats and ports to harbor them in, with bridges and docks and fortresses and lighthouses. Or they would take sometimes the jerking trolley to Villeneuve, and thence towards grass, dismounting wherever they chose and walking the pleasant miles back to St. Paul, with Stephen lagging at their heels, for dinner at the inn and a quiet evening by their own fire. Never, it seemed to Kurt, had he known such utter content. The past, by a willful forgetfulness, had faded to a dream, a background for the present, but, for the moment, impinging on it scarcely at all. Tony was in part, at least, right. To worry, to question, to submerge oneself in a sticky swamp of conjectures about things one couldn't hope to change, was stupid, undeniably. He thought of his mother, worrying always about him, worrying this very day he knew about his health and his safety, and he knew whence his own propensities came. David, Derry, Chloe, the strange triangle would intrude itself again in his life inevitably. But the moment was good, and the triangle should not be allowed to throw its wedging shadow across it. His work was going well. After the weeks of morbid idleness, ideas were fertile, and they matured with surprising docility. Out of an old tune his mother had sung to him as a boy, the old New England ballad on Greenfield Mountain, he was evolving a score that pleased him hugely. To himself, as he worked, he fancied the music patterned itself loosely, after the quaintly sentimental tale of the young farmer who, as retribution for mowing on the Sabbath, was struck down by a black snake, and died at the side of his own true love, a perpetual warning to the ungodly. The melody, with its slow-dragging opening measures, lent itself surprisingly well to adaptation, and he found himself working at it with an ease and a willingness that surprised him. They had been a fortnight in St. Paul, when one evening Kurt played parts of his suite to an enthusiastic audience of two, Tony and Stephen. The latter's enthusiasm centered principally on the piano pedals, and manifested itself in clumsy attacks on Kurt's feet. Tony's, however, was genuine and sweeping, his temperament made him particularly susceptible to music that was gay and vivacious and a bit satirical in intent. And Kurt, basking in this unaccustomed adulation, was in high spirits. It's your turn now, Tony. I haven't heard your second act yet, and I'm all agog to know what Miss Beasley said to the Duchess. Little persuasion was needed. The table was shoved aside, and the room became an impromptu stage, where Tony, playing all the roles with equal verve, enacted his still unfinished play. It was, it seemed to Kurt, a brilliant thing in its way, brittle, sophisticated, a comedy of manners bordering perilously on burlesque, yet skirting the edge with such agility that this feat alone added delight to the performance. I'd like to try my hand at music to a libretto like that sometime, he said when Tony had concluded the Duchess's last crisp retort, and, with a regal gesture of an imaginary lorgnette, collapsed on the divan. Tony was silent a moment. Then he leaned forward into the glow of the fire, eager with the idea. Well, why don't you? Do you mean it? 
queried Kurt. Why not? Why didn't I think of it before? It's a corking idea, Kurt. The spirit of the thing's right, isn't it? Make it an operetta. Not just a musical comedy. Go Gilbert and Sullivan. We'll be McGarren and Gray. Will you? You could do it in swell shape. When'll we start? I know enough producers in New York to give us a hearing. And who knows? The novelty of a musical show with a plot and music might make a hit with them. If the shock wasn't too severe, just at first. Tony's enthusiasm was contagious, and they both went to their beds that night, much later than usual, full of a new idea. It prospered amazingly during the remaining weeks of their tenancy. Kurt, when he set himself to it, worked rapidly. His head buzzed with tunes, and his fingers were hardly able to keep pace with the pen. The libretto was finished in three days, and both Kurt and Tony set themselves to writing lyrics with a joyous zest that was the best possible background for the emerging operetta. An unexpected mordant sense of humor in Kurt, whose existence he had hardly suspected, and a certain gift for pertinent rhyming, made him an able contributor, and between them the Duchess decides, took form with a speed that surprised them both. The tunes, Tony insisted, were corking, gay, light, lilting, and the lyrics, thought Kurt, were quite above the average. The air of the old house was frivolous with music, harmonizing voices that made up in ardor what they lacked in skill. Tapping toes, shouted suggestions that echoed through the old walls with, often, startling incongruity. The blue warm air outside, however, the gold-globed orange trees, the teeming scarlet geraniums, were an understanding company. The staid dark citizens, seeing those mad young men, one dark, one fair, marching down the cobbled street arm-in-arm arm to the tune of some outrageously shouted and quite unfamiliar song, were surprised but tolerant. Blue day fled blue day, and gold day after gold. They had been a month in St. Paul, a month Kurt was to look back upon often, and regretfully, as a sort of golden interlude, a perfection of living never again to be captured. Tony's work on the Duchess Decides was done, and he was restless. For Kurt there loomed the not-too-pleasant task of preparing acceptable piano scores to the various numbers he had so glibly concocted. The sheer physical and mental strain of writing down so many black dots and flags and signatures and bars and rests he dreaded. But he set himself to the task and got along well enough so long as Tony left him alone. But Tony was restless. The manuscript of the play was like a gift of money begging to be spent, a bottle of champagne begging to be drunk, an adventure begging to be lived. And he was impatient at the methodical scoring and the slowness with which it seemed to move. Kurt was too busy to regret the passing of that perfect sympathy he had so much enjoyed. But he sensed the tension of Tony's uneasiness and worked the harder to set it at rest. On a day that seemed the climax of all these perfect days, a day like the old Tokay, Kurt and Tony met as usual at breakfast over their steaming bowls of tea, and for the first time it seemed necessary to talk of plans. Previously it had been tacitly understood by each that the forenoon was to be for work. Any discussion that might occur came at lunchtime, 
but this morning Tony was ill at ease. "'What's your program this morning, Kurt?' he asked, testing with a tentative and careful fingertip the heat of the bowl. "'That second-act chorus, the Hussars, it's tricky, and if it doesn't get a good harmonic background it'll be a total loss.' "'Oh, damn the harmonic background,' said Tony petulantly. "'It's a grand day. Why not forget it for once and go for a walk with me and Stephen?' "'Yes?' You know you'd be blaming me in your mind every step of the way for not being at work on your on our opus. What's the trouble, anyway? Oh, you know well enough. I'm bored, and I'm raring to get our duchess to the producers. There isn't another thing I can do on it. It's all up to you. And I can't sit around here and listen to you thumping out those damn chords on the piano all day. They seem so senseless, all by themselves like that. Don't seem to be getting anywhere. Come on along. It'll do you good. But Kurt was not to be persuaded. He left Tony morosely crumbling a crust of bread on the check tablecloth for Elise, grumblingly to pick up, and went to his own room. He stood for a few minutes at the long window, swallowing deep lungfuls of the almost liquid sweetness of the morning. On the top of the low hill opposite, and beneath him, a bare-legged girl tugged at the tether of a laden burrow, as loath, apparently, to be at its rightful task this glamorous morning as he was himself. He turned to his chorus of the hussars with a reluctant but determined mind. Overhead he could hear Tony's slippers thrown down and Stephen's silly scramblings across the tiled floor, and then the heavier steps and the slamming door that told him they were out of the house and he must work in earnest. He sighed as he fumbled with his pages. There was no swift and illuminating stroke of inspiration in this. It was drudgery, no more. The writing down of what was singing in the mind so clearly, so self-evident, this was simply a matter of knowing how, and it always made him impatient. He could fancy himself so much more entertainingly, and, with some conceit he thought valuably, occupied. So he was not polite when Elise, perpetually puzzled by the vagaries of her two strange employers, fumbled at the door and made it apparent that she was anxious to make the bed. And a few minutes later he threw down his pen in exasperation when the latch again rattled and the door was partly shoved open. This time, however, it was not Elise, but Tony. Kurt sat back in surprise. "'You back so soon?' he said. Tony kicked at his walking stick and looked out the window. Then he turned. "'It's awfully foolish of me to stay on here, Kurt, without a thing to do,' he spoke hurriedly. "'I haven't too much money, and I can't get a part of New York this season if I'm not back soon. Then, too, I'd like to see what can be done with the Duchess.' He looked at Kurt, for the first time since he had come into the room, straight in the eyes. "'Would you mind awfully?' he asked. "'You could stay on here as long as you liked, and—' "'Stay on here alone? I guess not.' Or do you think I might have an affair with Elise just to complete your cure?" He grinned derisively. Then he rose and put his hands on Tony's shoulders. See here, kid. If you feel you've got to go, that's all there is to it. You mustn't consider me. I wouldn't stay on here without you, on a bet. It wouldn't be right at all. But I can go on down into Italy as I planned at first, and finish the score in about two weeks of steady work. Then I'll have to be about this scholarship business again. How long does that keep you here? Until June. 
That gives me plenty of time for Rome and Munich and maybe my last month in Paris. Yes, well, now that I've decided, I'm not going to put it off. See here, knock off work, get on some respectable clothes, and come to Nice with me. We can find out about a boat for me, and the trains, and I'll treat you to a farewell dinner. What say? It seemed an occasion for some special celebration, and in an hour they were off by way of the jerking trolley to Severn and the careening motor-bus to Nice. Here, their errands done, and an aperitif sipped at one of the cafés fronting the square, where Tony took an especial delight in pointing out three distinct young men at three distinct tables who were distinctly on the lookout for male companionship, and whom Kurt, in his innocence, would not have looked at a second time, or a first. They strolled along the shore to Reynaud's. The dusk was just descending, a lavender veil, bringing with it, up and down the shallow curve of the bay, erratic rosy lights. A cool breeze from the Mediterranean decided them to sit inside. They chose a table against the far wall of the café and turned their attention to the menu. "'Who's your girlfriend?' Tony asked suddenly. Kurt, looking up, discovered a plump lady across the room, smiling at him and waving a glove. Kurt waved back. "'You remember her, at the Pension in Severn, Kathleen Horan. She's Irish, and she paints. Guess what? Watercolors,' said Tony. "'Right. She's really a good sport. Has enough money, apparently, to do as she likes, and she likes to live the genteel bohemian life wherever the fancy strikes her. She was at Severn before I went there, and left soon after you came. I think she's in Villa Franche now.' Tony ordered champagne and the dinner was proceeding pleasantly when Kurt felt Tony's hand clutch his knee under the table. "'Look what's arriving,' he whispered. With considerable gaiety, a party of four had come in and taken a long table against the wall next to that of Miss Horan, who was viewing their somewhat alcoholic joviality with beaming tolerance. Leo Rubin, red of face, talking loudly through his flat nose, was host. Mrs. Rubin, in a tweed suit, looking ready, as Tony whispered to Kurt, to psychoanalyze the universe, chattering volubly to the other couple. Frank Harris, Kurt overheard, might be down to spend the next weekend with them. Kurt listened intently. Harris interests you a good deal, doesn't he? Tony said, amused at Kurt's attentiveness. Of course, doesn't he you? Tony shrugged his shoulders and countered with a question. You've read his life of Wilde, yes. Like it? Well, I thought it was a biography of Harris as much as Wilde. I liked parts of it. Parts of it annoyed me. How? His attitude. It's the typical attitude of the he-man, making a great show of his tolerance for Wilde's perversion, and wanting all his readers to know exactly his own position. Well, why not? asked Tony, with a light laugh. It wouldn't do him any good to be classed as one of Oscar's boyfriends. Oh, don't. Of course he's excusable. But how can he be expected to write a really sympathetic biography when he has no understanding of the thing that underlay all Wilde's troubles? But, Tony interrupted. Kurt paid no heed. He spoke with an animation that Tony found new and amusing. Before you came, Mrs. Rubin gave me his autobiography, my life and loves. Have you seen it? Tony shook his head. 
It's, it's appalling. It shocked you? asked Tony, smiling quizzically. I've heard it was pretty raw. Yes, it shocked me, but not the way you think. It wasn't the moral thing in the puritanical sense that shocked me. It was the bad taste. Such an obvious pandering to dirty minds. He tells in nauseating detail about his affairs with women. And here, this is what I'm getting at. He describes his love-making with great gusto. Lust, there's no better word, strange caresses, tongue, teeth, hair, things surely as perverse as what he deplores in wild. But because it's a man and a woman, it's all right. The real object of this thing called love, normal love, is creation, isn't it? Babies, new humans. Really, then, any part of lovemaking that hasn't that immediate object is perverse. Tony started once more to interrupt. No, wait. I'm not saying that I approve of that idea. And you certainly don't. It destroys your game of love. What I objected to all through the book was Harris's opacity, his inability to see how little difference there really is between that sort of dallying and ours. Almost at the end of the book he seems to see the light, but he doesn't see it graciously, and I hated that. Hated it. Kurt's face was flushed. The champagne had taken effect, and Tony's was surprised at his vehemence. But Kurt had not finished. You remember the night you gave me the lecture? You said that love was all alike. You were right about that. So is lust. Each kind of passion, man and woman passion, man and man passion, has all degrees of love, from love that is pure and high and fine, down the scale to lust that is ugly and despicable and beastly. Each kind has its prostitutes, its procurers and pimps and houses, and each kind has its ideal lovers, its Paola and Francesca, and Dante and Beatrice on the one hand, and its David and Jonathan, and its Shakespeare and Willie on the other. The only difference is, the only damn difference is that for us there's no way of getting social sanction. So we go around the world like a lot of sorry ghosts, being forever ashamed of a thing we've no reason to be ashamed of. He put his chin heavily into his cupped hands, and the glasses tinkled with the impact. Oh, see here, Tony admonished. Forget it, for now at least. The Rubens have discovered us. It was apparently true. Reuben himself was grimacing at them maliciously, and the whole party was eyeing them with some amusement. It was obvious that they were being discussed. He shouldn't do that, Kurt whispered, and then, abruptly, where's the bill? Let's get out of here. Let's get out. His hand shook as he rose. Tony, with a quick perception of how difficult it would be to cross the café directly into these contemptuous, politely sneering faces, and pass them to the door, went first, and achieved the exit grandly, as an actor might be expected to. He turned for a reassuring word to Kurt, and Kurt was not behind him. Damn! He had forgotten Miss Horan. As Kurt passed her table, his chin high, his face flushed and defiant, Without a glance at the Rubens table, she had caught at his sleeve and simpered, Oh, Mr. Gray! Kurt's willfully assumed nonchalance was totally upset by this unexpected salutation. He swayed a moment, his hands moving helplessly at his sides. You seem to be in a great hurry, you two. You're not going back to St. Paul so early in the evening, are you? Yes, yes we are, Kurt stammered, his face burning. 
conscious only of the peering faces just at his elbow. Stephen, floppy-eared Stephen, illogically flashed into his brain. Stephen, he said nervously, Stephen, our child, we have to see that he's all right. There was a snort from Reuben, and a hoarsely whispered, My God, they've got a child, and a shh from Georgia, and a maddening assortment of snickers from the rest of the party. Kurt turned and ran to the door, his eyes blinded with hot tears of mortification. He started up the street at such a mad pace that Tony had to skip and half-run to keep up with him. Oh, what a fool, what a goddamn fool thing to say! How could they laugh like that? He was half laughing and half sobbing, and Tony, with difficulty, threw him down on a bench by the waterfront and quieted him. His own worldliness, his arduously acquired indifference and superiority, were strangely shaken by the whole episode, and particularly by the storm of passion this quiet young man had summoned up. It was partly the champagne, without doubt, but there was a depth of feeling, a flaming intensity hidden away here that he had not suspected. A quiet, soul-consuming bitterness he could have comprehended, the sort of thing he had encountered in Kurt when he first came to Severn. But this, this made him look curiously at his docile companion of the past few weeks, and wonder how wise his glib prescribings had been. Oh, come on, Kurt, he said tenderly. What does it matter? What do they amount to, the whole lot of them? Come on, forget it. To Kurt, this low-voiced sympathy might have been his mother's, and he a little boy again, white with hatred of the school bullies. Tony's arm across his shoulders was somehow his mother's arm, and crying silently, he dropped his head into this consoling lap. End of Part 3 Chapter 3